0: It's just this completely like out of left field series of justifications for the most existentially terrifying problem that exists, which is why bad things happen to good people.
1: What's going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith.
0: And I'm Troy Polidori.
1: And this week we are going to be Everybody tackling- say
0: happy birthday to Austin. Sorry to
1: interrupt you. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He well, turned time- a cool 30 this week. that's right my buddy was looking at me he's like yeah you look like you're 21 bro I'm like well I appreciate you but (laughs) I I don't and I definitely don't feel like I'm 21 (laughs) um especially after a a few beers and, and not drinking for a while then I definitely felt old but um yeah no it's good appreciate you man appreciate you um, and what, what better way to spend my actual, cause in Australia, it's not my birthday, but in America it is my birthday. And what better way than to talk about the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have a question here. Okay. Um,
0: I don't think it is your birthday in Australia. Cause I think if you were born in America, then your birthday is going to correspond to how many years after that date in that place. Right. So I don't think it's your birthday. You know, I think it's your
1: birthday right now. Yeah, it's technically it. Yeah, exactly. So it's absolutely that's perfect. So yeah, 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 yeah. So I you, thought about you, you're that. the one who miscelebrated. Yeah, because I jumped to I jumped to the wrong part of the earth, and then I celebrated a day early. But actually, like in terms of how many exact, you know, revolutions around the sun with. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's how it works. Although maybe there's like some weird space time, like relativity thing that I don't understand. <laughs> like maybe not. I don't know. You know, you'll have to get somebody that actually studies this stuff. Um, Uh, But yeah. But anyway, what we're going to be doing this week is we're going to be tackling the patron chosen topic um, so that all of y'all out there that support us on Patreon, you voted for it. You got it. We're going to talk about Job. And now before you run for the hills, if you're like, you know, agnostic or atheistic and you're like, I don't want to talk about fucking God. That's the point. That is the point, because there's actually um, varied interpretations of this text. There's a sort of orthodox historical interpretation, which I'm sure that Troy and I will discuss And then there's a lot of confusion about what the fuck is going on in this text and, like, why is God angry with Job and what's going on with the devil and what, who is Job and are there reasons for suffering? And then we're going to talk about, like, some philosophical stuff attached to it uh, with, like, suffering in the world and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about today, yeah? Yeah, dude? Yeah, and we're reading it um, or basing this conversation
0: off of an article that's uh, from a secular Jew. So getting a little bit different perspective than maybe we've
1: gotten in our own history uh, dealing with Job. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that'll be good. Um, And I think that's pretty much it. Is there any like admin shit that we got to take care of before we get into the show?
0: Yeah, I mean, talking about patron-sponsored episodes, we do want to mention that if you want to support us in more material ways, you can go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and contribute towards our next patron-sponsored podcast. We are only doing half of our patron-sponsored show for this month today. Uh, We're also going to be covering in two weeks, or thereabouts, uh, whether or not it's possible to be a bourgeois class trader. Uh, In between the the two patron-sponsored episodes, or the two halves of the patron-sponsored episodes, we're going to cover the TV show Severance, since we both uh, recently watched it, and think there's a lot to discuss there. So yeah, look out for an episode on Severance in the next one, and then we'll come back and finish up the patron-sponsored episodes
1: next time, or one after that, I should say. Yeah, that'll be great. Yeah, looking forward to it. Sweet. All right, well, let's get into this madness. Yes, we've got to talk a little bit about our sponsor movie, yeah? Yes, we do. So we, um, as you might know, are sponsored by MUBI. It's like the best streaming service that's out there. I'm not even kidding. Sometimes I go on the app and I forget how freaking cool they are. But MUBI is basically a special curated online streaming platform where the genius pickers at MUBI pick like regional uh, film festival favorites. They do like director spotlights on, you know, the best directors that are across cinema. Um, it's not just contemporary fanfare. A lot of it is, but a lot of it's also like going back into the annals of history and stuff like that. So it's just freaking amazing. Um I whenever I go to the library, I always am like, oh shit, they're doing that. Like they've got a whole bunch of new Hanukkah or not new, but Hanukkah films, Michael Hanukkah films out at the moment, um, that are kind of like new ones. And they do this like spotlight film of the day, right? So you can see something exciting that they're doing. Um the they've got uh I don't know if you've ever seen the Werner Herzog film My Son, My Son, What Have You Done? I've never seen No, it. I haven't seen that one. No me either. The guy's made like a fucking Jillian films, so it's uh yeah. it's difficult to keep up with all of them. But um and then and then of course uh, from 1926 Buster Keaton filmed The General, right? So that's what I mean. It's like stuff that is contemporary And amazing um, and then also back through like the classics of cinema. Um, Right now, Joachim Trier, uh, famous for um, the worst person in the world that maybe Westerners or Americans for the first time have um, been introduced to to this guy's work but um his other film that kind of like put him on the map was called oslo august 31st and that is streaming on movie as well at the moment and they basically go out and they just find the best and the most interesting and the deepest and the richest and it's freaking great so do you have anything that's in my library in australia they do different regional libraries but what's going on in your library that's caught your attention at the moment
0: Yeah, likely in the U.S. we have a different library here, and there's plenty of stuff um, to see. The one that caught my eye first and foremost was 20,000 Days on Earth, which is a documentary on Nick Cave. Um, And if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you'll know that I'm a huge Nick Cave guy. And he's released several um, films, some documentaries, some kind of concert films, some blending the two. Uh, he's really into you know kind of the art house side. Obviously, stemming back from like his days from the birthday party and stuff, he's always had that side to him. So, Twenty uh, Thousand Days on Earth is a little bit more exploring the day to day workings of an eclectic songwriter or whatever it might be, right? Um, so, it's a little bit different than some of his more musically centered and concert films, all of which are great, also. But I thought I, th- I watched Twenty Thousand Days on Earth back when it came out. I mean, that's must have been like eight or ten years ago. Um, and so, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, so if you're into Nick Cave or you just like kind of watching people who are, you know, creating masterworks, putting their stuff together, then I would, uh, definitely recommend 20,000 days on earth about Nick Cave.
1: That's so sick. Yeah. It's so fun, man. I, um, you know, I constantly, people are constantly complaining about like, I don't know, the, the, the quality of content or whatever that is out there in the world. And it's always nice because Mubi legit always has something that's freaking great. Um, They've also got really cool short films and things like that. They've just got different sections and whatnot that you should go check out. So if you want to take advantage of all of the goodies that uh, they have for you, you can get a 30-day free trial. Um, So if you want to go ahead and do that, head over to Mubi. That's M-U-B-I. That's movie.com slash owls at dawn, and you'll get a 30 day free trial. So, M U B I dot slash owls at dawn, and you'll get a whole month of great cinema for free. Movie.com slash owls at dawn. And as we like to say, we will see you at the movies.
0: <laughs> All right. So, before we start talking about Joe, we got to do the first part of the episode, which is the shitty minutes. For those who don't know, this should be a minute. part of the podcast where one of us talks about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So, Austin, what's got you down? Even though it's your birthday, something recently has to have been getting you down, right?
1: Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess I could, I could find something. Um, <laughs> you know what? So I've been thinking about this a lot. I actually want to do like a sustained – I mean, I, there's a lot of like uh, essay book projects, right, that I would love to do at some point. But one of the things that I've been – sensitive to lately or just really attuned to lately is I don't know really what to call it, but I'm calling it like the assessment society, right? You know how there's always like books or essays that are like, it's the risk society or the, you know, fucking the me society or the, the, I don't know, the achievement subjects or the achievement society or whatever. But it, mm-hmm. so I, I keep thinking of like the self-assessment society. And I think that um, there's just this, there's such a tendency for people to, be checking in all the time, right? Um, That is also tied to like maybe a little bit of a narcissism that comes from a consumer culture that really creates this, this cock, this strange cocktail of like self-obsession. And I don't mean this in the way that's like the me society, but what I mean it as, as like a self-punishing, Right. Um, so it's not self-obsession and like the moralistic, like, oh, you're just, um, so insular and you only care about yourself. I mean, I'm sure that's part of it, but what I'm more bemoaning right now is more about like how damaging it is to not have our vision really extend outwards into the other. And so there's this book written by Marc Auger. He's an anthropologist, French anthropologist. Um, it's called non places is his like big famous book. But um, he was an anthropologist working in uh, – with I think it's the Aladian people, um, Aladian people, Aladian people in Africa for like the 60s – no, 70s and 80s and stuff like that. And he's like a structural Marxist uh, anthropologist. And then in like this – the like late 70s, early 80s, he gets this idea to like start doing I think what he calls like um, self – like self, self-ethnologies or something like that, which is basically like he becomes an anthropologist of the urban – and he's French, so he's, like, going around Paris and stuff like that. And it culminates in, like, well, he's obviously written a lot since then. But, like, a lot of people see his most famous kind of idea is is called the non-place, which he then says is, like, characteristic of what he calls over-modernity. And what he means is that that what we have is we no longer have, like, what he calls anthropologies of place, which are rooted in like meaning and culture and history and identity and stuff like that. There's much more of a grounding with nature and the earth and et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the non-place is a place that is a place that is kind of always in transit that you're moving through. And there's no sense of like deep rooted placeness. And so the book comes out in like 92, I think. So this gives you a sense of like, what's, what's like dominating at the time. This is like the early stages, early stages of cyberspace right so he didn't even have the full internet at the time when he was coming up with this idea um but he's talking more about like shopping malls and airports and like uh freeways highways things like that that are just these non-places that people are more increasingly moving through right and then the the places are becoming less and less and he characterizes non-place by these three excesses and one of the excesses is like it's like excess of time um, God, excess of time, excess of something else. I can't remember. And then excess of individualism. And what he means is, is that that we are so kind of confronted by other people, but because we're moving through these spaces so quickly, we don't really have time to actually be with the other. And so we end up kind of like just becoming more insular and it actually leads to like an intensification of individuality where you're constantly separating and carving yourself off as an individual unit in contradistinction to others. And it creates actually more alterity than anything else. And then it leads to like this excess of individualism and i'm just thinking about that in in light with like this like they're like hey just check in you know see how you're doing sort of like kind of pop psychology sort of culture as well that might contribute to this and then the kind of like other layer to this is um we were i was like deep in like a research hole and i came out the other day and my girl was like on the tv just like not watching really anything and then the fucking kardashians popped up and it was like their new tv show and, um, uh, was watching that for a bit and I just remember sitting there and it's like, I think it was like Chris's birthday and, um, just like the, the conversation that they were having, it was just all, all about like themselves, right? Like the conversation was always about like their things that they're doing, their worries, their concerns. Like it, it just felt so like the way that I like can think about it is like when you when you say something and your words like go out from your face and they go out into the world or out into nature or something like that right like, you can scream out into a valley like for them it was like everything they said like went out like a foot in front of their face and then like went back into their brain it just like like looped back it was like they were just talking to them <laughs> you know what I mean it's like that the, that was like the visual it was like their words went out and then back into their brain and then and it was just all like this like I don't know if that makes any sense but and, uh, well, that's just I like think, a function of reality
0: TV show brain, right. Where you're like, you're not talking to anybody, but you're also talking to everybody. And the yeah. Weird kind of <laughs> and, and you've,
1: you've complained about this on like Twitter, right. Where like Twitter, like it's like, um, instead of being dialogue, it like turns out to like monologue. Right. Remember we talked about that and it's like, yeah. like I don't know who needs to hear this, but I'm going to get on my soapbox now. And now I'm going to have a monologue and th- there's something about this form of conversation. And I don't know, it's, it's just leading to like this like, constant, like, we're just concerned about ourselves and worried about ourselves. And the only things that matter are the things that are going on with ourselves. And, um, and I worry that that's like another kind of like contributing factor because those things influence us. And then we look at the TV and we're like, well, we got to talk in the way that they talk. And then um, I, I just wonder if there's all of these pressures on us to constantly be quote unquote, checking in with ourselves. And then you have this other layer, which is like this really, I think insidious layer of like this being good for mental health, that we should be constantly checking in with ourselves. And I think under certain conditions, I agree. It's really important to check in with yourself, right? Like, One of the great maxims of the history of philosophy is know thyself or as Foucault talks about like care of the self, like working on the self, right, Um, which I think is a very important and valuable tool that has existed for millennia. Um, But when you have a culture that doesn't really equip you with how to do that, right, but it just kind of – Constantly encouraged you to check in, check in, check in, check in. But the only way we can check in is through the language of either self-obsession or the language of like excessive individualism. Um, I I just worry that it actually feeds more fucking anxiety because we're constantly checking in every – Second of every day. And then it's like, well, goddamn, when you're checking in so much under these conditions, of course you're not ever going to reach any goal because the very system that's telling you that you gotta check in is one that inherently divorces you from any satisfaction from achieving anything because it's vacuous and empty in itself. So then it like just creates this further intensification of vacuity. And so Of course it's going to be damaging. And then, of course, you need it more because you got to check in more. And then you got to, like, do more stuff while you're checking in. And supposedly that's going to be the cure. But that doesn't really cure anything. And so it just creates this, like, endless intensifying pathology. And I'm just not so sure that, like, I I, I don't know. I'm just not so sure that it's the best thing. And I don't really have any answer for it. Maybe my answer is, um, fuck you and uh, I hate dust and ashes. And that is quite foreshadowing. (laughs) by the way. Um, But like maybe that's the answer. I don't know what the answer is. But yeah, there's the assessment society, self-assessment society or something like that. There's something there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're just kind of talking about like what is life as a subject under neoliberalism, right? Like that's the the basic idea. I mean – the, the moralistic critique of this excess of individualism or whatever is that, you know, we're becoming increasingly individualistic and we're turning to like our, our moral sense is turning towards egoism, right? Self-interest is the only thing that matters to anybody, right? Or it seems to matter yeah. to anybody. Whereas, you know, the, the proper critique of that is to say, well, that's because not just our spaces, but including our spaces are only facilitating development in that direction. Yeah. Right. So like. It's hard. It's really incredibly difficult to be centered in a place or to sort of exist intimately with other individuals or spaces when all day, every day you leave your house and then you drive on the freeway and then you go to work and then you go to the shopping mall on the weekends and then you go home. And it's like every space is just transitory in that sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and all your relationships with people are you know, purely instrumentalized and stuff like that. So that's the issue and it's creating us as subjects oriented in that direction. And so if you wanted to fight against that, it's trying to fight like an an invisible army. That's also immutable or what are you supposed Mm. to do? Right. Yeah. Um, And then you, and then the the self-assessment thing is just basically a tool for you to get blamed for it. Right. Mm. Here, this is what's shitty things that are happening to you, but you know, do your self-assessment and convince yourself that you're the problem and you need to just do more work on yourself to figure it out. Um, I mean that's just like I mean we've talked about this before, but that that's like the thesis of Adam Kotzko's "Neoliberalism's Demons," right? Mm. Um, that it exists as a moral framework to justify blaming individuals for structural uh, outcomes, right? That are largely outside of their control. Yeah, um, we got to read that book, by the way. At some point, we'll bring back our book club, right?
1: Maybe this <laughs> Definitely. <summer. laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, and. In- and, it, yeah, there's this, there's an element of demonization that is taking place. But you know what else there is? is There's an element of valorization. And that's the thing that I think I'm actually most – that I find most annoying or most insidious even is because it's, like, encouraged by the – I don't even know what you would call it. But, like, is it is it the positive psychology or is it just, like, Instagram – fucking life coach culture thing that's that i think is like feeding more of this and and i think i think that it becomes bad when it's coded in certain ways right like that's Mm -hmm. that's precisely it like like checking in with self like fucking stoics talk about that right you read meditations and fucking read Epictetus, and they're like checking in all the time that's the whole point it's like check in every morning make your see what you did well and what you didn't do and then at night see like reckon with yourself and you do like this fucking accounting it's like okay cool like so they talk about that shit and that's nothing
0: inherently wrong with that right yeah
1: yeah yeah so there's like like it's been around forever it's just that when It's just that when it's so tied to this like emptiness, it's like, what are you checking in for? And so you're not checking in for anything. You're just checking in with yourself just to check in with yourself. And so you just like sit with yourself and then you just become more and more kind of like emptily obsessed with this checking in process, not even obsessed with self, right? Like, which is different. It's like you become obsessed with the process of checking in with the self with that is just a system of checking in with the self. So then you just get obsessed with the system. (laughs) <laughs> right so it's just like checking in to check in with checking in and i think that's kind of and i just i i don't know if i'm if i'm sensing something or if i'm projecting or whatever it is but like i just see it like a lot and uh and i don't know yeah yeah, yeah. it ain't it ain't good man no I feel yeah so let's talk about um a big old grumbler a big old historical guy who wants to grumble at the lord also like his life is a shitty minute like this text is like is this text the rabbinic shitty minute? Is that like Oh
0: dude, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah. <laughs> and then like the the end of Job is is God's to he leaves just being like, oh. here's all the awesome shit that I did.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's great. Oh shit, that's great. All right, so uh, get us in here. Let's let's figure this out. I mean, the patrons chose, they wanted us to talk about Job. I don't know why Job was in the air, but Someone recommended it, and then other people were like, you know what? Yeah, let's talk about Job. So um, we're going to talk about the book of Job from the Bible. Typically, it's um, considered to be one of the oldest texts, if not the oldest text of the Old Testament. Is that correct?
0: I mean, that was what we were taught, right, in like uh, Christian theology school. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if the rabbinic tradition or the Jewish tradition writ large uh, has a consensus. I I don't think that there is a consensus overall about whether Job is one of the oldest or one of the not oldest. Depends on the interpretation. And I think that probably Job has the widest degree of uh, interpretation, like widest latitude of interpretation in the Jewish tradition from what I understand. So, I mean, correct us out there if you know a lot about the rabbinic tradition, but I'm guessing that uh, Job is not one of the easiest to place that. And that, for those who don't know, it's just because... Most of the recognizable things in other books of the Hebrew Bible don't exist in Job. There doesn't seem to be a priesthood of any kind because Job's like doing his own sacrifices and shit for his house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the institutional stuff that can help you place when events are supposed to be taking place isn't there. Now, that doesn't mean that it wasn't, it could be, you know, the setting of the narrative could be much older than um, much of the events in the Hebrew Bible will also. Uh, being written much later so that doesn't tell you a whole lot about when it was written so yeah i don't i don't know that we have a a good idea about when it was written but it's certainly the most like alien narrative
1: and it could be just one of those fucking like i i also would wonder like in um like what is it comparative mythological studies or something like that like are there senses Mm -hmm. in which there are more um like kind of common texts, if you will, right? Like the suffering, the suffering person, and that this is sort of like an oral tradition that is taken to um, place in many other different cultures. Maybe it's like some sort of uh like comes out of like Egyptian Mesopotamian culture or something like that. And then, of course, when um, when a different people group kind of take it up, they put their own unique spin on it. Something along those lines, right? So
0: yeah, that would be really interesting to go through.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: One question to help kind of ground us here is, why why is Job so popular? Like, it's it's weird. It's really strange, right? It, it's kind of a strange fit just even in the Hebrew Bible, right? Obviously, Christians and Jews, but maybe especially Jews, have had a hard time really getting to the crux of what Job's supposed to be about, like the point of it, right? And there's even like, a lot of speculation about whether or not the, the beginning of Job and the end of Job were... Um, sort of prologues and epilogues that were tacked on to make sense of an otherwise inscrutable narrative, Mm. right? Um, So that just lends credence to, even if that wasn't the case, the fact that it it would make sense for it to be just tells you how weird the text is, because it seems like these parts are tacked on to explain things that were left unexplained in the original
1: like even reading, even reading in like the, the the translations where they obviously try to create as much flow as possible, you're like, wait, what? It's like a fucking. And so the and so the Lord did this now, and you're like, oh shit, okay, cool. So there's no transition here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, do you think we should we should give like a really brief synopsis of what happens in Job for people who maybe don't know?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's give them the. I guess like so. We also we we had this article that um we look to as well that's kind of like reading it in a different light and so i was going to say in the way that the article does it too let's give like the typical uh, standard narrative um and then and then we can kind of go from there
0: yeah so the the typical standard narrative is the beginning of the text um as i mentioned before some people think this part is kind of tacked on to make sense of like as a prologue to make sense of what happens afterward is that uh, uh, God and the adversary who's, you know, HaSatan or the devil or whomever um, have this sort of meeting where um, Satan says that Job is a righteous man, but he's only righteous because God blesses him with all sorts of things like wealth and a great family and prosperity and health and all this stuff. And so he says, if he didn't have those things, Job wouldn't be a righteous man. Um, he wouldn't simply, you know, worship Yahweh, just because. And so God's like, fine, I'll take the bet. I'll I'll take away all those <laughs> things and, and see what happens with Job. You know, a really godly thing to do. Um, so he does, and Job's family like slowly begins to die off. He gets boils and all sorts of diseases, all of his livestock dies, he loses his wealth. Everything bad that can happen happens to him. And Job is obviously incredibly dismayed. Um, he's wondering what's happening because he knows for sure that he's a righteous person, has not done anything to deserve these suffering, this suffering. Um, goes to some of his friends, uh, three different – it's three friends, right, I believe? Yeah, three friends. And they all have very different explanations, um, but they're all sufficient or you know, allegedly sufficient explanations for why these things were happening to Job. And they all kind of uh, end up with Job having done something wrong that he's not realizing or not admitting to or lying about. And he rejects all of them and says, no, I know for sure that I'm righteous and that I've been good and I'm still – Um, dealing with all these forms of suffering that are unjust and I want an explanation from God. I don't accept any of these theological rationalizations of what's happened to me. And God finally shows up and actually affirms that Job is right, that he hasn't done anything wrong. Um, All the theological explanations don't work out, right? They don't mean they don't uh, suffice for anything. But Job still has no right to question God because
1: God makes fucking whales and shit. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, he hangs the earth by a string. Isn't that in Job, where everyone in the in in the Christian circle is like, "See, the Bible thousands of years ago talked about the earth being circle and hanging in space." Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't remember. I yeah, I, I, yeah. There's that's a th- weird we went- place to get. Uh, Cosmological. I know. I was just going to say that. I was just going to
0: say that. (laughs) It's all poetry until it's not poetry, right? Exactly. Um, Exactly. Yeah. So God goes on a super long diatribe about all the crazy, awesome shit that He's done, and that that's supposed (laughs) to, in some way, tell Job that Job has no right to question Him. Yeah. Which clearly makes no sense, other than as a fear tactic. Like, basically, I'm going to scare you into thinking that I've provided a justification for what's happening here, right? Um, and so Job has these famous lines, which we'll talk about. He says, therefore, I retract myself and repent in dust and ashes. And typically, I think even in the Jewish tradition, that's usually taken, and especially the Christian tradition taken as Job actually accepts this as a justification and says, I have no right to question God. Please forgive me for ever daring to question whether or not you even needed to provide any sort of justification for the way things are. Um, and so when he does that the sort of epilogue of the story which again some people think is tacked on is where job receives like fourfold, tenfold, whatever of all the things he had previously. Like he gets more money and more livestock and really kind of strangely and awkwardly like more beautiful daughters than he had before. Yeah. The prize um, of the land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Kind of weird. Not sure that person or whoever does understands like what the trauma that comes from like the death of loved ones. But okay. Um and then it's supposed to be, I guess, the end.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um And obviously, if you have if you have any sort of like objectivity about you, you would read that and feel like, what, (laughs) what, what just happened here? I don't understand. This would be a really strange thing to happen and basically inscrutable in terms of what the moral of the story is supposed to be. Right.
1: Mm. Yeah, it is interesting, too, because I think it's important to think and I don't know if this is overly reductive, but I do feel like that all of the stuff that he gets and that he loses is really all wealth-related, right? And so there's this Mm. real interesting economic logic that is like – so you got this guy who has got shitloads of wealth, and that includes his family. And And the reason that the, the point about the daughters is important is because he talks about that he has like, you know, uh, many times fold what he had previously after he does his whole like repentance thing, which is like the Lord then blessing him for his patience or whatever or for his humility. And then what God does is basically just gives him a lot of wealth and that the daughters are important because, you know, those would have been things that you would have like engaged in sort of like cross tribal relations and stuff like that. Cause this is kind of taking yeah. place prior to the institution of any sort of um rabbinic uh or or um like priestly like order. So this is before even like I guess probably before even like Torah is handled down handed down. Yeah. And so this is like when it's like tribal tribal um tribal relations right so you got these various tribes and stuff like that so that's why it would have been important so again they're economic inputs so it's all about wealth for Job right and even his own well-being and his own health is so that he can kind of like endure um and then also not be shamed in the face of other people because the idea was oh if you have boils and shit like that then God is punishing you so you're not a righteous man so then it's also about like social wealth right so everything in this Yeah, it's all about like yeah, reputational value, right? So, and then of course you get like the the gamble, the wager that's basically like, "Hey, um I'll 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 take away all of the money and I bet you this guy is going to like abandon you." And then God is like, "Deal, you're on." Um and so there's like this freaking bet again. So it's like there's this interesting economic thing that i think is so important for us to understand and the reason why it's important to understand is because the tradition that we come out of they never talk about that at all right it's Mm -hmm. all just this like spiritual test right which is that like uh job was a righteous guy and um in order to prove uh god's righteousness you have um trials and tribulations that come and um, your responsibility as a human is to just continue to trust that God is righteous, that God has a plan for everything, right you know like uh, the wife at one point the, the, she comes to him and is like, hey, you should just fucking curse God now for all this shit and he's like, wait, but curse God and die, which is a pretty amazing line. yeah, yeah curse <laughs> God and die And he's like, wait, why should I curse God when he takes stuff away from me like but uh, he also gives stuff to me like like it's just kind of like you know it's it's all from God was like, the, the idea that is continually fed down like the Christian narrative, right? Um, and so then it's like all the bad shit happens and then um, it's all like when God comes, I've always – I was always taught that it was like who are you, oh man, to question the um, inscrutability of my plans. Like you don't know things. You don't know the wisdom that is beyond – uh, the things of this earth. And all of the friends are like philosophers and theologians that are trying to understand things from a human perspective. But the reason that Job is rewarded is because he like transcends above that. And he's not a philosopher. He's not using human wisdom, right? He's he's just tarrying with God's um, divine whatever fucking sovereignty. And uh, so then at the end, it's like, who are you to question? You don't know what I've got planned. So you just sit and wait. Right? And so he just sits and waits, and then God is like, okay, cool. Okay, you waited enough. All right. All right, bro. And and you humiliated yourself before me, so... That was it. That was what I wanted. You to just fucking humiliate yourself and to recognize that I'm great and I do everything I give and I take away. And now because you humiliated yourself, you get stuff. And then here's the like really, so I was like, okay, cool. Like as a a young kid, but then I was like, but wait a second. Is this not just like prosperity gospel shit then? So what you're saying is, is that I just got to like fucking humiliate myself, but then God's going to reward me like tenfold with cool shit and like daughters that I can sell into um, kinship relationships. Like is that, is that, I don't really know what to get. I was never comfortable with Job, I always just thought it was just that simple story. Hey, like you don't know what's happening all the time, but God has a plan for everything. God is sovereign, and um, just give it over to God. And and you, sometimes you got to suffer, you know, because that's part of the plan. That was that was like the basic narrative that I was kind of always taught.
0: Yeah. So two things. Well, let's get to the the thing about whether um, the the in, that Christian interpretation of the text has a sort of quantification centered notion of value where the only thing of value are like these um, it's kind of egoistic, right? In the sense of like there's um, only things that are of value aren't like people or individuals or experiences other than just like pleasurable experiences or like amounts of wealth or something like that. Right. And that's one issue. But even before that, what's so funny about the interpretation where it's like, if the point of it of the story was, You can't know God's plans, so don't even dare to question them, since you'd be questioning a thing you can't possibly know. Well, the problem is, in the text, we do know. Like, the first couple chapters tell us why what's happening is happening, because God took a bet, (laughs) right? Like, that's the reason. Uh, So We are given uh, a, a sort of God's eye view of why suffering is happening. And it's like the worst possible reason, right? Because hmm. it's not even like God saying, well, Job's pretty righteous, but you know what would make him more righteous? If he engaged in a bunch of suffering and and like persisted through it, then he'd even be more righteous. Hmm. There's a kind of like, you know, kind of Hegelian notion or Hegelian Christianized notion of like persisting through, um, through through suffering or antithesis and then coming out, you know, more holy or whatever. There's a, you know, strong Christian theme of that. Um, yep. But that's not even really God's argument. He's already righteous. <laughs> There's no sense in which he's said to be not quite sufficiently righteous or needing to go through a bunch of suffering for him to be righteous. He is no, righteous. It's
1: just because this asshole
0: tempts the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it doesn't even make sense from this like Christian uh, narrative of, of, of development of spirituality or sanctification or whatever that usually gets tacked on here as an interpretive framework. It like, doesn't even really make sense because – that that probably doesn't exist for the writer of Job. Like righteousness just means obedience. It doesn't mean, like, developing motivations such that you're being holy for the right reasons, or like some Kantian notion of doing the right thing for the right reasons, right? Like that kind of elevated notion of morality doesn't really exist here. It, righteousness just means obedience, right? So that's hard, I think, for people to take in, since nobody actually thinks that um, like it's sufficient to be morally righteous, to, to merely obey, right? Mm. Um, so that's that's obviously a huge issue, and I think kind of just sticks a stake into the, the kind of typical Christian interpretation. But even beyond that, like there's obviously a notion of morality here that's pretty alien to us even talking about what things are of value. Yeah, if you read that Job just gets all this money back, okay, so that makes sense, right? Uh, if you lost a bunch of money, but then got more back, then you wouldn't really be upset too upset right because money is sort of um equates in value over time and space right it doesn't really um matter as much uh if you get it all back like the the individual tokens don't matter right but obviously like people and probably animals for most people i would say the tokens matter right you mm. can't just replace one dollar bill with one dollar bill when it comes to people like you can't just lose a daughter and be like well i got another
1: one <laughs> um <laughs> That doesn't work. Everyone knows that. No, but you can not be like, "Hey, I got, but I got three now. (laughs) I have one now, (laughs) but I, I got like that, that, that punishment interest or whatever it is. (laughs) Yeah, that that only works if you if you see daughters as
0: potential like dowries or whatever, right? Like ways to gather more wealth by selling them off to future husbands. Yeah, and obviously everyone, everyone that reads this now today would think that that's horrific. Um, so yeah, the text is super alien from a moral perspective to us, but that's part of what makes it super interesting is that it's just this completely like out of left field series of justifications for the most existentially, uh, like terrifying problem that exists, which is why bad things happen to good people. Right.
1: Mm, Yeah. And I just want to say there's also like one of the best explorations of Job is the Coen brothers film, a serious man. Yep. It is. It's so fucking good, right? And it is. It's this guy that things absurdly – and the thing that I love about the Cohen brothers is they really lean into the absurd humor of it, right? Like when his wife is mm. like going to leave him for that dude, like – I can't remember the guy's name. I can see his face. I love the actor. Um, you're just like it, – it's so Psy like – Gableman,
0: right? <laughs>
1: you, you, yeah, Gable. What is it? Sai, Sai Ableman, Sai yeah. Ableman. She's like, oh, by the way, I'm leaving you for Sai, <laughs> and he's like, what? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and it's so, it's 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 just so absurd. Like, oh yeah, by the way, um, and whenever he goes to the rabbis or to the rabbi, yeah, to the rabbis, it's like he doesn't ever get answers, right? And uh, there are God ever is answers. like a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and it just gets more and more absurd. And I think that that's actually really great that they kind of lean into the absurdity of this tale, of this myth, of this narrative, you know, which is something that that we never got in because Christianity is always too self-serious, right? Like as as much as they try to talk about how they enjoy things, they really don't. Um, they don't. I mean, maybe it's at least not in the Christian setting. I don't know. Maybe they do. Maybe they enjoy – Todd McGowan argues that uh, the right is really good at enjoyment. Um, So maybe there is a a sense in which enjoyment. But in our circles at least, they were very self-serious. Well, they enjoy being self-serious. That's what they enjoy. They enjoy punishing themselves for how bad they are. And then I'm a little skeptical
0: about about Todd's approach. Uh, We've both been in those circles and there was a dearth of enjoyment.
1: (laughs) But maybe maybe the point is that they enjoy the little bits of transgression that they get because the law is so fixed. But he's more talking about like the exuberant, like Trump supporter, which is a very different. Like, I wonder what the source of enjoyment is. I don't know that the source of enjoyment is the like dour theological. I don't know. I know. I gotta, even
0: I, I get what you're saying, but I'm, I still think that there, there's probably there's some truth to it. Certainly, right? Yeah. But I still think that there's a lot of self hatred happening even then.
1: <laughs> so much, so much, yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just so serious, you know. It's just so serious, and I think they actually miss out on a lot of like the absurdity of what it is. Like, first of all, it is absurd that God and the adversary are just like making deals in like the courtroom of heaven. Right. That they're just like, yeah, hey, let's just fuck with some people, man. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like that's kind of ridiculous. Well, that's what's great
0: about it, right, is that it's obviously such an absurd justification for the events that occur. But if you have this view of it, which in the Jewish tradition exists and the Cohen brothers interpretation of it in serious mind is so great. You know, they're they're also uh, secular Jews. And so I think they really grasped onto this as the appropriate hermeneutic for Job. You, you really need to read it as being absurd. Like probably the writer didn't think mm. that it was an absurdist narrative, but you can't read it otherwise because trying to provide any sort of rationalization that would make sense for the amount of suffering that we see in the world is only ever going to be absurd, right? So you have to read yeah. it that way. And so it's perfect that the worst possible rationalization is given that God and Satan are making bets. That's the worst, most absurd justification right that's actually perfect when you think about it because this can only ever be absurd
1: might as well just like fully lean into it right it's so strange then that, that a text that is so confusing like how did it end up in the canon right so there's there's clearly like part of it is traditional but there's clearly a reason why people kept putting it into the canon right and why they kept commenting on it and why it's been such an important text. So there's something beyond the fact that it's just weird. For, for minds that existed a thousand, two thousand years ago, there's a reason or plus, there's a reason that they were continuing to place this in the canon. And I wonder what that is, right? Like, what is the significance of this? And it makes me think that so when you look at like uh, like the establishment of Torah uh, which is largely about like the the ironic line kind of setting up its rules of order um, in anticipation and maybe even to spark a little bit of like resolution, but in anticipation of like getting out of captivity, right? It's most probably written like when they're in Babylonian captivity, obviously pieced together from all kinds of oral tradition and stuff like that. But in its like canonized formulation – it's like then or maybe even like Second Temple Jews that are sitting down and they're like, hey, let's just make sure we codify our narrative, right? Like where we came from, who we are, how we got here, what's unique mm-hmm. about us, how what keeps us strong, how to continue to like reproduce our society and stuff like that. Like that's what like what Torah is, right? So then Job is this text that's like written by these people who are like you know, – let's say it is written during that – around that same time period. So it's by these people that are like trying to understand – their heritage and Job or, or who they are, where they come from, how they how they kind of like um, not only how they've emerged, but how are they separate and unique from like other peoples in this land. Right. Um, and then so Job is a text that like if it is written by these same kind of people and it's written down and it's codified during that time period, then is it written to do something similar? Or is this more like than like a theological commentary? Because the this is less about like There's no civil ceremonies, like you say. There's no, like, priestly rituals, as you say. I mean, there's still a sacrificial order, but that is also something that's, like, far more general of that time in that area. It's
0: domestic, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, like, I wonder what its place is even in the tradition, like, in a deeper sense. Like, is it just that, like, they're at that time wrestling with, fuck, tragedies do befall us, right? And a lot of the other writings from the Old Testament are, it's always that, like, there's a reason why. Right, like you stopped obeying mm-hmm. Moses' law, like that's the prophets are constantly railing against the fucking Israelites. Like, hey, you want to know why you got fucking conquered by the Babylonians or the Assyrians or why you're in captivity? It's because you guys fucked up, right? And so God, because you God slept a- with them, hers, yeah, that's right. It's 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 always like yeah. you guys fucked up. Whereas this one, like, I don't know, it doesn't seem like it would have been written while they're in captivity. Because there's nothing to motivate the people in the same way that the rest of the Old Testament typically does, right? To be like, hey, there's a reason for this, but but um, if you just come back to the ways of the Lord, right, then then you'll be liberated. This doesn't have any of that kind of narrative structure to it. So I just find it very strange, even in its context in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it really um, is antithetical to the prophetic uh, interpretations, right. Where like, it would be weird if it was, yeah. So all the prophets told us that we fucked up and that's why we're in captivity. But then Job tells us, don't worry, you actually didn't fuck up. There's just some things are inscrutable or whatever. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't really make (laughs) sense unless it was like, for those who are being righteous in captivity, don't worry, your time is coming. Right. It could be that kind of a sense.
1: Which is how I think, I think that's the Christian interpretation, which is always like, this is kind of like almost a new covenant narrative as, interpreted by post lutherian individualism, you know, that's like the new covenant is being hinted at because really it's ultimately just about like the change in your heart. It's not about your material possessions. Those things will come and go and God will bless you with those things potentially. But that really it's about having a, a pure heart. The law being written on your heart is kind of like I think what they're getting at, you
0: know. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense in the Jewish tradition of it's no it's corporate. It's always corporate punishment and corporate. Um, like a resolution and yeah. success, yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, yeah that, that doesn't really make sense from the Jewish tradition as, as being a way that would have actually motivated a writer to to develop this narrative, right?
1: Yeah, and so so it makes me think then that like what what's happening here. That's maybe also why why people are like this has got to be an older text because the time period that mm-hmm. it speaks of seems to be that, okay, it's got to be pre-Second Temple or pre-Babylonian captivity or whatever, right? Um, Even if it does become codified during that time period, maybe it's codified because it's just such a rich part of the tradition. And maybe at that time, that's when they start adding in the tops and the tails, you know, and they start saying, well, here's how we can fit it more into a narrative that can, that can kind of like give us guidance and it's the guidance of, Hey, guess what? We don't always know what God's doing, you know? And if you endure suffering, he'll bless you just like he did our father, Job, he'll bless you many fold. And if we can get out of this captivity, we'll be blessed many fold. Like maybe that was how they were able to um, justify it. You know, that like the adversary is against us, but that's okay because God is still on our side so long as we just endure, you know?
0: Yeah. And again, which,
1: Makes perfect sense if you
0: think that everybody goes through suffering and I mean, maybe I'm biased, but pretty much anybody you talk to who's left the faith um, does so at least in part because they or someone that they love has been through immense suffering and they can't understand the justification for it. And mm. that kind of alienation that, that follows from that um, because it's, it's difficult to believe that God is all loving and loves you if he, does these things without sufficient reason. Right. Um, Mm. and it's, it's kind of abuser logic to say, like, don't worry. Uh, that's not like you're, that's not worth your consideration or whatever. Like you need to just accept that this is how it is. Uh, I hurt you because I love you kind of a thing. Mm. Um, and people rightly get alienated from that sort of thinking. Right. And just to say that it's not okay when we do it, but it's okay when God does it at the same time as saying, you know, like the book of Matthew, be perfect as your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. Well, I don't know how to square those two things, mm. right? Um, yeah, so that's, I think that the, the book captures that sort of alienation really well. And, and my hope is that it persists in the narrative and, and persists in the canon because it addresses this incredibly important existential problem that literally everybody uh, who has uh, belief in God eventually faces at some point in their life.
1: You you were one of the first people that actually hinted at that reading of it to me because I had always been taught that it's like night and nicely and neatly packaged up with a little bow on it that's just about God's sovereignty and our responsibility to sometimes just shut up and endure because God has a plan, right? And so you just deal. Mm-hmm. Um and you were the first person that was that really kind of made me think that actually this is in the university and this is one of the One of the things that like I remember that was like uh, like what is it like like little cracks in the dam sort of thing. (laughs) This is one (laughs) of them, right, where it's like, well, actually, what if the text is more about just that, like that actually when Job lists his grievances and his friends try to figure it out, God actually doesn't ever answer him. Right. Like God never is like, well, actually, so here's the deal. The reason was this is because I was calculating and I was doing this like really if you take away the wager that God makes with with the adversary, which may have been and most likely was a, a later edition, that really what you get with this oral tradition is Job is like, what the fuck, man? And God just kind of comes in and says, like, I don't really have an answer, but I'm fucking I'm, – I do some powerful shit. And you're like, well, okay. Thanks, bro. <laughs> you know? And there's like no – there's no real answer to it, right? Things happen. The universe expands. um you know, creatures come in and out of extinction or not in and out of extinction. (laughs) They come in and out of existence. (laughs) Um, You know, there's these fucking mighty beasts walking the earth. um, And you know what? There's, there's like, there is just stuff that is beyond your comprehension and we don't really have an answer. And I, I think that was like, that was the first time that I kind of started thinking, oh, there's something interesting in that, that the faith itself was aware of its own inability to answer everything because 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 American Christianity, Protestant Christianity has to have an answer for everything. It's not good. Yeah. Everyone, they, they like to be like, oh, the secret things belong to the Lord, but they, they don't really wrestle with the the beauty or the um, importance of doubt. Right. Doubt is always a weakness thing because what it always is, is doubt is you not actually trusting enough so it's like yeah. this weird positivist or positivity spin on what should be like a deeper i don't know opening for questioning suffering in the world and insecurity and anxiety and fear and doubt and things like that but it doesn't because it always has to cover it over with shut up it's god's sovereignty
0: but also, I'll point out, like you're talking about um, Protestant Christianity, like evangelicalism especially, as instance of this, always has to have an answer for everything, right? There's an yeah. important distinction between having an answer and having an explanation, right? Hmm. What, what the kind of Christianity we grew up with had wasn't just having an answer, it was having an explanation, right?
1: Hmm. And this
0: is the obvious area where no explanation is possible, right? There's just no explanation that's going to suffice for actually explaining why suffering occurs with the magnitude and intensity uh, and degree that it does, right? Um, As that's not possible, but there is still an answer, right? The answer is um, just don't worry about it. There is an explanation. We just don't know what it is, Mm. right? There is one. Don't worry. God's got it. You just don't have it. And you're not going to have it until you're dead. But when you're dead, you're going to have it. You're going to have all knowledge, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then that's, you'll be. Then you'll then you'll feel the explanation is, is satisfactory, right? Just right yeah. now, you won't. It's yeah, that's just the are Yeah, it's just like when you're,
1: yeah, it's it's like when you're three,
0: and your parents like go to bed, and you're like, I don't want to go to bed. This sucks. <laughs> and they're like, Don't worry, we've got it. You'll thank us later. Like mm. there is an explanation. You just can't accept it right now. But once you're mature enough, you will. And so you have this like proleptic sense of okay, I can anticipate. The future explanation that's satisfying present me because it will Mm. exist right or it will be satisfactory when i get to the maturity level that i need to be to accept it um, which may come later in life or just you know in the afterlife or whatever but there still is an explanation right um what's what's anathema to contemporary like american christianity is that there isn't even an explanation even if you had all maturity in the world because God has all maturity in the world and he doesn't have an explanation, (laughs) right? Mm. He's got nothing. He's just got magic tricks, right? Um, Mm. so that's the thing. That's the absurdity, right? There just is no explanation. That's what absurdity is in a sense, right? The recognition that there is no explanation for why things are the way that they are. Um, and so that's the thing that can't be accepted. And that's something that, that the Jewish, the best Jewish interpretations really grab onto it's just, we kind of have to interpret this thing absurdly because that's all we got. That's what it's kind of saying in the end, even if it's not the authorial, inter- authorial intent or whatever, is that there isn't an explanation for suffering. There couldn't possibly be for the kind of suffering that we see. Hmm. Um, so we're just going to make up an explanation that's obviously unsatisfactory or not even try to explain in the case of God at the end of the book.
1: Yeah, the, the, the more I'm thinking about it, the, the kind of Protestant... The, the, their their whole orientation is like essentially god's sovereignty is so transcendent that at some point you just shut up and obey and the explanations not 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 only is it like well our feeble minds can't understand it understand it now but we'll understand it you know when we have like a an understanding of eternity and it was all part of God's plan, blah, 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 sort of thing. But that's like, that's like, that's like an easy way to like tell you to shut up. But ultimately it is, there is like this strange power play that's like, here's an explanation. And even though the explanation is unsatisfactory, you can't talk anymore. Right. And of course, then what that does is that, that is a way of like subtly reinforcing the power of the sovereignty of God's representatives on earth, because it's ultimately about like creating this stark division between like sovereign authority, like the source, and then, I don't know, socioeconomic or socio-political or socio-cultural realities. Right. And um yeah, it just it just seems like that, that that's kind of like just part and parcel of that. Right. Is that, that, that it is, that it is a kind of, I mean, I don't want to say sneaky because that makes it seem like it's like some sort of plot, but it's like some sort of like, um, um, it sneaky, uh, way of, uh, of just being like, you know, shut up. Stop, stop questioning. Just stop questioning and get in line sort of thing. You know?
0: Yeah. It, d- it does give credence to the, like, it's not even an argument that God poses. He doesn't even address the dialectic. Right. Yeah. Um, he just like flips the table um, and says, we're not playing anymore. Um, but then like, I, I kind of appreciate that though, because yeah. So some pastor somewhere is going to use that as pretext for a kid that comes to him and has doubts about God. And then just telling him he needs to stop doubting because doubting is bad or whatever. Yeah, and that's obviously not even um, like, that's, a, that's bad for the Christian faith. <laughs> the person has let alone um, like leaving that. Um, but and sure, that's going to happen. That's going to happen anyway. I feel like like people have power over others in religious context, and they're going to ecclesiastical context, and they're going to use it to tell people to shut up when they don't have an answer that's sufficient. Right? At mm-hmm. least the text is like pretty damn clear. That's not even trying to be an argument, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I uh, even in my days where I was, I was you know very committed to the faith, was still like, yeah, but Job, man, like that text is is like incendiary. God doesn't answer him at all. Anybody who reads that gets like can tell, right? And Mm -hmm. you have to be really coaxed into taking a different interpretation to accept that. Oh, no, this is a legitimate argument that God's made. and, And Job is right to like his repentance isn't an act of fear or humiliation. It's actually like a rational
1: action based upon the argument that's been given, which it clearly is not right. Well, and the great thing about it is that, that Job actually speaks with God and stands up to God almost as an equal, right? Now, now God triumphs in the kind of debate by being like, hey, motherfucker, I got – you got some strength and you've got some wisdom, but I've got like real big power over nature and shit like that, right? But nevertheless, there's still a sense in which they're able to communicate, whereas the, hey, just shut up and accept accept what we're telling you actually cuts you off from the possibility of communicating with the uncertainty itself. Right. Hmm, Like it actually creates a severing like like you can't even approach God anymore except through um, this already pre-crafted methodology, which is just trust, shut the fuck up, just trust, shut the fuck up. So it actually cuts you off from God, whereas the interesting thing about Job is that Job is able to go straight to God and be like, I fucking hate you. And, you know, I was was reading this. (laughs) I was laughing because I was thinking about that Jordan Peterson thing that went viral where everyone was like. Like, what was it? Like, uh, people are angry against God for the crime of being. (laughs) Do you remember that? I'm not sure I saw this. No. (laughs) Oh, dude. So he was talking like people. Someone asked him and it was like one of his talks and they were like, you know, like, why? Why are the people on the left like? Like, you know, engaged in the, like, the activities that they are, whatever, blah, 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 And he's like, I think the truth is that they're angry against God for the crime of being. And a lot of people took I mean, this he's not and they like, he's not <laughs> wrong. That's the thing. A lot of people didn't like it. And I'm like, actually, that's maybe the most profound thing he's ever said. And yeah. it's actually, it's actually beautiful. Like, yeah, they are angry against God for the crime of being. And this is Job here. Job is angry against God for the crime of being. And that is interesting. Right, <laughs> and that's something that you can't do when you're in a in, in a system that doesn't let you approach being, so to speak, and to get angry at it and to fucking curse yeah, you, God. You know, no, this this is so good,
0: right? Because I had not thought about it this way, but like, it's actually really comforting that Job gets to just call up God on yes. speed dial and be yeah. like, "Talk to me. What the fuck is going on?" And God yells at him, right, and doesn't answer him. But actually, you're like, actually, this. Clearly, this dude's insecure. Like he's had a hard day. Obviously, Satan's been badgering him with some stuff. I heard him in the background, or whatever, like banging a gavel or something. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna piece out. Like, this, this is not, I'm not gonna get anything from this guy. That's actually kind of reassuring to get yelled at, rather than to just be like a Kafka-esque, you know, yes. running down the halls looking for the law and never finding it or whatever. Right? It's really comforting to know that God's insecure at this questioning and that I'm just gonna have to accept that he doesn't have anything for me.
1: <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's so good exactly yeah and and then when we don't allow us to like have access to that then it cuts you off. you know the the church loves to talk about how like oh you used to have to go through the priesthood and stuff like that but now you got jesus right now jesus you can go directly to god luther the whole thing of like you know translating the bible in the common vernacular like why is that so so anathema in the mind of the church it's like oh my god people can go straight to god but actually they've created their own forms of mediation right and the forms of mediation are like doctrine methodology you know law and grace stuff you know uh covenant theology versus dispensation. like they create their own systems of mediation that prevent you from actually being able to just go straight to it and be like fucking curse you man you know curse the universe right and job is a text that i think cuts through all of that shit where you go straight to the fucking source like fuck like why is there suffering and i don't know i was thinking about that um Especially when I was reading this, this slate article that you sent me on the impatience of Job. And, um, it, so just for people that are listening, like the author, Abraham Reisman, 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 he, um you know, is a, is a reformed Jew, which is basically like he grew up doing, you know, like a little bit of, uh, of, of cultural practices, but like by his teens, he was like, ah, this stuff isn't for me and was basically an agnostic and whatnot. And he said, but then a few years ago, um, he particularly, it's interesting to when it was the rise of, um, like Trump coming up and demonizing Muslims. And he was like, well, shit, I'm going to learn a little bit more about like, like the demonization of culture and stuff like that. He's like, I'm Jewish. He's like, you know, we've obviously dealt the the kind of swift hand of being demonized to intense degree he's like so shouldn't i maybe like kind of like think more deeply about um you know like the demon demonizing of other people and stuff like that so he spent time in palestine and whatnot anyway he gets to the book of job and after doing like a lot of study and actually like reading in hebrew and stuff like that and he starts to get to a point where he is like actually i think there's a different interpretation of it which is based on some other um like commentaries and whatnot and do you want to talk about like the shift in interpretation and then maybe what you think about it
0: yeah, I was hoping we'd bring this up. Um, so the the new like hermeneutic that he gets from a guy uh, named Greenstein, who is, I think, is he like a, a rabbi, some sort of like Hebrew scholar? Yeah. Um, and he points out that uh, that famous phrase that Job um, sort of admits after God goes on his long diatribe is, therefore, I retract myself and repent and dust and ashes. And, um, Reisman and Greenstein, uh, notice here that dust and ashes only ever appears once outside of this context in the Hebrew Bible. And that's in Genesis when Abraham is trying to convince God not to destroy Sodom. And he says, if you can just find like 50 people then that are righteous, then you will, you know, destroy the city. we 45 or whatever. Right. <laughs> um, and Abraham refers to himself as dust and ashes in comparison to Yahweh, to God. And so it's kind of a leap here and I'm, I'm curious what you think about it, but Greenstein says that, uh, or Greenstein says that we should interpret this as Job making a reference to Abraham's claim, um, about humanity being dust and ashes and that he's kind of doing it sarcastically. And so therefore I retract myself and repent in dust and ashes is actually more like, this is why I'm fed up and I take pity on the dust and ashes on humanity. Um, you know, the piece of shit or whatever. Mm. Um, and part of this is that, you know, and we should recognize that the thing we've been talking about here where it's, you know, it's a it's actually kind of um, it's nice that, that Job's able to like call up on God and and seek an explanation directly. And the fact he doesn't get one is actually not as bad because he, he knows that he's not going to get one as opposed mm. to like the existential state yeah. of modern people where you don't even know that's the case. Right. You're just completely lost in, in meaninglessness or whatever is that God not, doesn't just give him the non-argument. About like making cool shit. He also tells him, "No, your friends are wrong. Like you were righteous. Yeah. Like, Job doesn't have to worry that he fucked up and didn't know. Right. He didn't. He never has to like have this weird neuroticism about his past um, or even his present about whether or not he caused his own suffering um, unduly or you know without knowledge or whatever. Like, that's a really important piece of knowledge that he gets right. Mm. And so that might also be like, okay, Job just got this." He did get some new information that's really pertinent to his situation. He didn't screw up. His friends were all wrong, right? All the theologians were wrong. He was right. He didn't screw up. Um, but then he doesn't get any explanation for why it actually he's had to undergo the suffering that he has. So what if he's being sarcastic here and saying, um, like, I'm done, like, I'm just giving up on on this whole process of seeking justification or whatever. And I think... I, c- I couldn't tell if Reisman was trying to make this like a protest thing. Like I take pity on dust and ashes. I side with humanity over you, God. Right. Um, I couldn't tell if that was the interpretation or if it was more like the thing that we're talking about, or it's like, I-, I guess I'm not getting an answer. So like, okay, I'm done. I- I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue with you anymore. And so repenting or retracting there isn't um admitting wrongdoing or admitting that you made a mistake it's actually like okay like i would drop my claim like I'm, I'm leaving i'm going home like i'm picking up my ball and i'm going home
1: i took rise I what do you as, think. as doing like a like a camu like sexy rebel like um like yeah i should just fucking kill myself but i'm not gonna and i'm just gonna rebel against the fucking Sisyphean task that is yeah, before me, which you know—that's that what I took. <laughs> uh, yeah, i that's what I took as Reisman's conclusion. Like the
0: protest part, yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. Like, but but it was like a sexy protest. Like, yeah, you know what? Life sucks and life is hard, and there is suffering. And one of the reasons that personally, for that Reisman recounts that he got attracted to this narrative is he dealt with despair and depression in his own life for the first time. So I think for him, it was sort of like a vindication of like. So there is this deep human tradition of dealing with suffering, and I can tap into that not by relinquishing, you know, power to to a beyond, to a transcendent, but by being like, you know what? Okay, there is no fucking answer. Shitty stuff just happens, so it's on us now, you know? And I think that politically the reason that Reisman or Reisman goes that way is also he talks about this being in the context of like the emergence of Trump and being like, oh, So we've got like um, you've got Zionism as a tendency. You've got Trump demonizing people groups and we don't have any answers for suffering on this planet. And it's all political and it's all material. And you know what? It's on fucking us. And it's okay to recognize that just life might just be suffering, that that might just be a law of the universe. And um, so therefore now it's our turn to be like, you know what? We can either resign ourselves to accepting it. Or we can fight against it. And I think that he was like being like, well, then let's fucking war against it, you know, because this is what he says. He says, maybe the moral of Job is this. If God won't create just circumstances, then we have to. And so Yeah,
0: which is ambiguous, right? I'm not even sure what that. That's supposed yeah, to be. Yeah,
1: and then he says and as we do, Job's honesty in the face of both harsh collapsing world and the kinds of ignorant devotion that worsen it must be our gu- our guiding force, force. And the honesty is we fuck we're fed up and we pity humanity because we fucking suck, right? And so it's something about that honesty of just recognizing that there is no like angels of our better nature, right? Like that mm-hmm. we can't appeal to like, oh, but we're good or the arc of history bends towards justice or that God's got a plan. Any of those things, I think this is sort of like a postmodern celebration of nihilism. It's kind of like the act of nihilism, right, that we've talked about before and engaging. Yeah. And that's how I took it. It's, it's sort of like a, engaging in a transvaluation of values. that's like, OK, cool. So then our guiding force is to laugh in the face of the idiocy of the universe. That's how I took it. Yeah, I, I think that's it's ambiguous between those two senses that I was talking about. I think you're right.
0: Um, and I guess my reaction is just like the whole Camus, we need to um, live happily in spite of the gods thing. Like, I just think it's psychologically impossible and incoherent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think anybody who thinks about it for two seconds kind of realizes that it is, and it's a little bit like maybe childish or whatever. Mm. But like, I get the impulse, because you should be mad. Like, it's possible to... Um, we need to just find a way like, to integrate anger at, at the cosmic injustice of something with also realizing that that anger doesn't need to be the main motivator for doing good. <laughs> it mm. can coexist with a different motivator to doing good, but it doesn't mean it has to be the, like the principal motivator for doing good, right? It just needs to be integrated in some way or coexist with it in some way. And kind just yeah. like wants it to be the main motivator, which I don't think makes any sense. Um, but yeah, we do need to recognize like the anger is, is justified. And so Job should be seen as being exasperated or unsatisfied or whatever with the explanation he's giving. Because is isn't even an explanation, right? Not even an argument.
1: Um, yeah. And I think yeah, my, my I like biggest – well, my, I think I do have a problem though with just the interpretation. And I think the interpretation might be read through a prism of like a liberal romanticization of – this the human like the homo faber kind of logic right because so if they're if they're trying to say that job is echoing abraham when abraham uses that line the point is is that like abraham is 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 the, the story is being told by the ironic priesthood to establish the line of their legitimacy And then to connect that to the forefathers that they are descended from who kind of create a genealogy, like ground their historical place, how they were called by God, that they were separated uniquely as being distinct. And so when the angel comes down and is like, hey, let's, you know, you find X amount of righteous people that I won't destroy the city. And it's like, they can't. The idea of like Abraham resigning himself to being like, hey, before you, I'm just dust and ashes is I think part of like. This communal logic, right? That's like, hey, like before you humans, yeah, we, we are just dust and ashes. You know, we're just fucking nothing before like the transcendent beauty or the transcendent holiness or separateness of, of Yahweh. And then and then so like with Job's retreading, if if it is a retreading of that, wouldn't he be tapping then into this larger communal setting, this community setting, this this societal structure. Rather than just like a, hey, we got to just make stuff better for us, right? Now, maybe I'm just trying to – I'm getting too much into like, you know, authorial intent and shit like that rather than being like, hey, here's an inventive way that we can kind of look at what it's like to deal with suffering and we can look at like the poetic musings of a guy who was like yelling at God, which is fine. I, I don't have a problem with that. But what I'm wondering is is like in the context, I, I just wonder if it doesn't do a little bit of a disservice to kind of like – uh, that, that, that that The importance of, of the community aspect that is so integral to the entire Abrahamic narrative that if Job is retreading it, it's got to have something to do with like I'm dust and ashes. It can't just be like, oh, hey, I'm – okay, like like humanity sucks, like fuck humans, right? It can't be that. It can't be just that. It's got to be something like in relation to God, in relation to the divine – I, 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 we're just, we're just nothing. Right. Which is a little bit different, which then maybe kind of like gets us back into some of the problems of interpretation earlier. Cause then it's like, oh, okay, cool. So in relation to the divine, you're nothing, but that's because you got to shut up and just trust the divine. Then and, and, and maybe there's something in there that they're wrestling with. Like, God, how do we continue to stay faithful when, but, but I just feel like, I don't know. I just feel like this interpretation is too, it's too like excited to like run towards like a, like a post Nietzschean. Like individualism, I don't know. What do you think?
0: No, I like that. I hadn't thought about it that way, but you know, just to kind of even connect this to the our last episode on um, everything, everywhere, all at once, we were talking a lot about how the like a, a key virtue of that film is how the nihilism and meaninglessness happens within um, the like as a result of the loss of a value, rather than like as an external threat to the value, right? Yeah. Um, it's what always happens in the context of like, usually relationships breaking down rather than the thing that breaks down the relationship. Um, Mm. and there's a kind of, that's part of what makes the end of Job so heinous, right? Is that like, he gets the daughters, new daughters and he gets, you know, um, whatever else back and a bunch of money and wealth and livestock and stuff. But like, there's no reconciliation that happens anywhere, Mm. either with people or with God. Like, I don't think we're even told Job's wife, who was all pissed and told him to curse God and die. Like, do we ever find out what the fuck happens there? And <laughs> um, there's no reconciliation that happens. And so it doesn't strike us as satisfying as a resolution because no reconciliation happens, mm. which is, you know, part of that. There is no reconciliation to happen with the divine because the divine is not going to offer it to you. Right. Not satisfactorily. But it's not even reconciliation amongst people between each other. Right. Right. And that is the kind of thing that we would need to have any sort of, um, satisficing resolution to the narrative. So yeah, that, that also, and like you said, it, it, it's in stark contrast to the history of the Jewish canon where that's usually available. Right. So yeah. there's a kind of, kind of, um, maybe toxic individualism that happens here in Job too, that we can recognize that that adds to it's, um, the epilogues, uh, unsatisfactory or, you
1: know, lacking a
0: resolution or whatever.
1: Hmm. I mean, I will say this. Like, this is this is the sort of interesting conversation that we just were never allowed to have in like a Bible study setting. You know? So we just we just did it afterward.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. That's what we at M Dub, and that's why we have this podcast now. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, like the, I, I feel like that there's so much of like um, like a stifling authoritarianism subtly subtly persistent in evangelicalism that that when you're in it like I don't know like I didn't sense it that way because it just felt because I had so internalized like a duty to to the sovereignty if you will like a duty to to just remain faithful that um that you don't really realize it until you get out and you kind of look at the other side and you're like oh, wow, like these sorts of conversations are actually part of the very spiritual tradition that we're trying to align ourselves within, right? But we've we've actually done a disservice to ourselves by cutting ourselves off from that and and that we don't allow ourselves to yell at God, curse God, doubt, um, leave the faith, walk away. You know, like whenever, whenever somebody does, it's always like, hey, they're struggling, but, you know, church discipline will bring them back and, and they're going to come back. Rather than kind of like a, a recognition that's like, fuck, like, what if, what if, what if it were more celebrated as being like endemic of the very constitutive framework of, of like the religious impulse per se, you know, um, which yeah, is very I mean, sort of like of, more Kierkegaardian, but yeah. What was that?
0: Yeah. I was, I was just going to say lots of religious traditions, even some in, in Christianity centralized doubt as constitutive, partly constitutive of faith, right? Um, You couldn't have a healthy faith without uh, some degree of doubt. And lots of religious traditions center that. Like Struggling, anger are all important aspects of faith. They're not just like transitory, um, antithetical experiences that you eventually throw away and uh, use to become more holy or whatever, right? No, like they are the holiness, like they are the becoming more sanctified. Right? They're the appropriate responses to the way that things are. Um, and that's, yeah. And, and the really fundamentalist forms of Christianity and many other religions too, it, that gets stamped out. You're not allowed to have that. You're, you're told that you're bad for having that or that you're wrong for having that and you need to mature and move beyond it. And that's just incredibly personally unhealthy, but also spiritually unhealthy. Like if you want to have a good and healthy religious faith, you can't, stamp out those negative experiences and act like they don't matter or don't mean anything
1: Mm. yeah 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 um i mean i say we go ahead and wrap up the discussion there it's really interesting um maybe we can post the the link to the article um down in the show notes we'll definitely tweet it out um it's just a quick read it's uh from slate uh god when was it was oh i don't have the date here when was it from uh from march i think just a couple months ago yeah March. yeah it's called "The Impatience of Job" by Abraham Reisman or Reisman R A I S M A N, and uh, yeah, yeah, interesting stuff to think about, if nothing else. So, thank you, patrons, for goading us to get back into thinking about religious shit. Um, that'll that'll never go away. I've actually I've been listening to a little bit, like like if I ever have kids, like I have decided in my mind that my kids are going to go to like a Waldorf like Steiner school right? Like for sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, like Steiner had some pretty out there ideas, but I've been listening to some stuff on, on some of his ideas lately. And um, he's just an interesting, an interesting dude. And all that to say that there, um, there's some richness out there that um, for those of us who are more like materialistically minded, and I don't mean that in like the consumerist sense, but I mean that view themselves as trying to look at reality through a lens of a critique of political economy or who, who are interested in the values of historical materialism as a, like a theoretical apparatus. A lot of times we cut ourselves off from other resources because it's like just mystificatory ideology to think about like religion and shit like that. Right. And I don't think that's the case. And I think it's, it's good for us to look at culture and look at mythology and look at history and look at religious tradition and things like that. Um, because those things are very part and parcel of the motors of history as well. And so, um, yeah, so I love kind of being able to explicitly dip my toes back into this stuff. Yeah, dude. You know I'm on board with that. Yeah. All right. So we'll go ahead and wrap up the main segment there. And now we're going to turn to the sticky leaves. This is the segment of the show where one of us gets to talk about something that's given us meaning in a universe where God is probably just talking about how he makes like Leviathans and fucking does shit. And there's no fucking answers. We don't fucking know. But, you know, (laughs) sometimes there's things that can bring us a little bit of joy troy what's bringing you joy so uh a couple weekends ago i
0: saw godspeed you black emperor live wait what is it godspeed you black emperor are you do you know of them no oh they're they're pretty infamous um kind of like post-rock is usually what they're labeled because they yeah they're they're pretty infamous um they're a canadian band of like Seven to ten members, depending upon when you catch them. Okay, and um, they're really kind of almost like secretive. I think for a long time, people didn't know who was in the band and who wasn't. Um, all their like, song titles are inscrutable. They're completely instrumental, no vocals. They use rock instruments, but they play like there aren't like song structures that are anything like rock. It's more akin to like some kind of classical music. Um, okay. they're very noisy, very noisy. Um, lots of big crescendos. They kind of invented the no they didn't invent the post rock label that existed in the mid 90s but they kind of became the most famous band that had that label attached to them of post rock hmm. and they almost never tour and when they tour they often to play in weird places um so I'd never seen them live even though they are my favorite bands ever they had a, a record that came out when I was in co- when we were in college called Left your skinny Fists like antennas to Heaven which became a really famous um beloved much beloved record and like the in like the underground rock community um and i've been a huge fan of theirs ever since and so they were going to play out here in the south in a cave that's about two and a half hours away from me (laughs) and so i was like i I gotta go to this dude (laughs) um i don't care what i have to do i gotta go to this this is gonna be incredible and they never tour so like it's now or never probably uh they've been around for about 25 or so years so they're, they're getting up there they're not spring chickens anymore um, so I went and it was absolutely as incredible as I could have imagined it being. It was literally in a cave. Um, and all the acoustics were perfect for their style, which is huh. very much on slow crescendos. Um, and that gets amplified with the incredible amount of reverb that exists in a cave. It's a, it's a venue. Like it's an actual venue built into like the side of the cave, but it's a, okay. It's a cave. Like it's surrounded by rocks and shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was like an hour and a half long. It wasn't like the longest show ever, maybe two hours. Um, but they were they were crazy and incredible, and I'm so glad that I went out there. Uh, shout out to a friend of mine who came out and was willing to be there with me, um, so I didn't have to drive all the way out there into the boonies <laughs> by myself. Um, but it was it was crazy. And so, if if, if you're a fan of Godspeed Black Emperor, but you haven't seen them, definitely do whatever you can to make that happen. If they come anywhere near you, if you have seen them, I'd love to hear from you at me so we can trade experiences. And if you don't know who God Speedy Black Emperor is, definitely go and check out all of their records because they're all great, especially um, their first couple records. But their new one that came out last year, which is their first record in a little while called uh, God's P at State's End. None of their titles are coherent or mean anything. Um, Is also wonderful. I think it's the best record they've done in maybe a decade or more. So you can check that out too. Yeah, Godspeed, You Black Emperor. That's the name.
1: I just looked. Sometimes it's abbreviated God's P. The latest record, yeah. Oh, is that what it is? So, uh, yeah, I was just looking at the, like, they just, God's P. Did they just call the band God's P? No, it's Godspeed, like telling someone Godspeed or whatever. Yeah.
0: But on their latest record, the title of the record is God's P at State's End, which I guess is a joke on their the first word in their band name.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty good. Um, I love when you can have an experience like that, like just live music. And I haven't been to like a live music event, like like a legit one. Like I've seen live music, but it's been like, you know, like in pubs and stuff like that. But I mean where it's like a band that you just really fucking love. I grew up doing that and it's just been so long. Like part of the reason is that I just... Like I don't even I I guess I just don't fanboy out over like bands as much as I used to, you know, and so it's different. But I do kind of miss that. I do kind of miss yeah, like, dude. yeah. You gotta get back to it, man.
0: There are a know. lot of great bands in Australia.
1: Well, I'm sure. I shit, man. I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs>
0: do, do you ever see uh, anything about uh, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard? How about you? I think they might be from Perth, or maybe Melbourne. So the Lizard
1: Wizard—that's so good. They're—they're
0: they're the greatest. They might be the best rock band in the world right now. <laughs> really? Um, Hold on. Yeah. I'm with looking. the best name, also. <laughs>
1: yeah, dude. That name is insane. Yeah. King uh, Gizzard they're, and the Lizard Wizard.
0: Can you t- can you see if they're from Melbourne or Perth?
1: Yeah, or from Sydney. Let's see. They're from Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So not, not necessarily near you, but I have to imagine they come to Sydney because they they tour relentlessly. Um, They're going to be in the States later this summer and I'm for sure going to see them because they're supposed to be incredible live. But if they ever come around to you, that's going to be like one of your first (laughs) shows back because they're, they're legit.
1: Okay. So I'm on their, I'm on their website right now and I don't see, oh, here we go. Shows. Oh, they're in Mexico. Then they're going to the U S and then they're going to, they're not going (laughs) to be back here for a while.
0: Yeah, they probably, they won't be then they're going to Greece then they're going to
1: Spain then they're going to Germany now, yeah so then and then they're going back to the states oh Jesus. then oh, they're wow. going they're... back then they're going back to Europe what the fuck uh, then yeah they're going to be in Europe for, dude they're not going to be it looks like the rest of this year is all like Europe and US yeah all these bands
0: even they, they really to tour anyway but even um the ones who don't like they're making up for the two years of I'm not making any money on tours. So everyone's touring like crazy.
1: Dude, literally, they're going US back to Europe, back to US, back to Europe, then back to like fucking Canada, then back to Europe, like the, for the rest of the year. That's crazy. Okay. Damn. Yeah, so not soon, but when they come back, you got to go see. All them. right, well, they're on my radar. Yeah, man, that's, um, that's pretty cool. Do you know what about it that was so amazing? Because you've had like amazing concert experiences. So how do you now rate the difference between like a really transcendent experience versus one that's just like really good?
0: Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, there's been a couple though that I know I would label transcendent in the sense that it was completely unique and I felt like took me to a different experiential space than I've ever had before. And the two that I can think of that meet that category are Sigaros with the LA Philharmonic Orchestra at Walt Disney Concert Hall that I saw a while ago, a few years ago. And then this one, I, Godspeed, because it was just on oh, really anything, I, It was a love, like I've seen shows that I would say are the, the quality level was at the same, at the same space, but not in this way of being transcendent of mm. feeling like I lost, I lost time, I lost space, um, completely overwhelmed and enveloped. Part of it also is the, the cave makes the noise over, like it, it surrounds you it's not just coming at you from one direction. You don't know which direction it's coming from. Mm. Right. So that's, that's also part of it was really unique and they're and they build soundscapes like they don't write songs in this, in the traditional sense. So it very much felt like you're, you're being surrounded by music and it's like picking you up and taking you somewhere. Um, and there are there, you know, their music sounds that way, even on record, right. It's transporting, um, not really narratival and that just gets amplified in this live context and then amplified by the particular live context of being in a cave Hmm. so yeah they're and i've always i've heard that they're one of the great live bands of this era and so they they don't tour very often so if you have a chance to see them you got to so i knew i like okay this is something
1: i have to do Mm. yeah yeah fuck it's been so long since i've been to like a like a one of those types of concerts. I honestly can't even remember. I can't even remember. And for me it was never like um it was it was less like like transcendent and more like um like this like community earthen experience of bodies, you know?
0: Yeah. It's a different kind of transcendence, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's that those are the ones I remember, you know, where yeah. I don't know. That sounds sick, man. I'm gonna have to check them out, and I really want to check out King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. I'm gonna check out their yeah, music dude. right. I'm gonna check <laughs> out the music right now. <laughs> yeah, check out. Uh, I mean, okay. they have so many records. Their new one is
0: is really good, Omnium Gatherum. So okay. check out the first song, and this is for listeners too. The first song on their new record is called "The Dripping Tap."
1: Okay. It's
0: it's 18 minute, minutes long. The song is 18 minutes long. Yeah. Um, and it's insane. So you should listen okay. to that.
1: If okay, you can deal
0: with an 18 minute long psych jam, then you will like King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. <laughs> okay, sick. I'm so down. <laughs> uh,
1: sweet. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode. Remember, you can hit us up on Twitter at owls underscore at underscore You can hit us up on Insta at the same owls underscore at underscore uh, you can follow Troy and I individually. Um, yeah, we're out there if you want to get in touch. Please make sure you head over to patreon.com slash owls at dawn if you can throw some pennies our way and support the show. And uh, also make sure you check out Mubi, right? Mubi.com slash owls at dawn. Honestly, the reason that we'd love to have them as a sponsor is because it's it, they're legit. So um, yeah. check them out. Yeah. mubicom slash owls at dawn. We love you. Uh patreon.com slash owls at dawn. I was undergrad. You know what I <laughs> find I think I've said everything Troy, is there anything I have left out?
0: Just one more thing I can think of, dude What's that? Dostradamia, Marikonski Dostradamia <music>